Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's the Wonky Show. Some big admissions news. We'll look at the guidance on getting students home for Christmas. And we'll take a trip down memory lane to the student demonstrations of 2010. It's all coming up. Uh, and the idea is that students are then encouraged to move home during that week by their universities who will indicate which students can leave on which day. And uh, to facilitate this, all teaching will move online from the 9th and uh, mass testing will be available on some campuses dependent on uh, the kind of uh, numbers of cases. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, still isolating up in the attic, but the good news is I've got some excellent company with me, as always. In Birmingham, Helen Higson is Provost and Deputy Vice-Chancellor at Aston University. Helen, your highlight of the week? Oh, definitely um, coming really high up in the wildlife on campus league tables. <laughs> Extraordinary. And in London, Chris Shelley is Director of Student and Academic Services at the University of Greenwich. Chris, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight of the week was just simply going into the office yesterday. I'm, I'm making it in one day a week when I can, and it's just so nice to be on the campus and see some real humans, especially because we've got such a nice one in Greenwich. Brilliant. And we start this week with admissions. Uh, Monday Morning's Times contained a piece from UCAS trailing its review of admissions and now Universities UK has rushed out some similar proposals. Chris, what's going on? Yes, well, uh, John Cope, the Director of Strategy, Policy and Public Affairs at UCAS, uh, published an article in the Times on Monday um, saying that UCAS had been looking at the issue of uh, admissions and uh, the specific issue around uh, post-qualification admissions, something that we've, I think, been aware has been on the horizon and and obviously been in discussion in the sector for a long time. Uh, And they had reached the conclusion that it needs to change and that they've been looking at various models Um, And then he posited two options uh, that he said UCAS had been looking in particular at um, and then immediately seemed to dismiss one of them. It's it's the the same tactic I use if I'm trying to get my son to eat something that I want him to eat, but I present him with something that I know he'll dislike even more um, in a hope that he'll uh, he'll choose the option I really want him to. So uh, the the two broad uh, options set out were the, um, uh, you know, simple, if you like, uh, idea of uh, students not uh, making their final choices until after they've got the results, a PQA model, um, but actually a, a second more radical version, which would be that they don't even make applications until after results, and that would result in the sector needing to move to a January start. Um, and as John himself then made the point in the article, that would be very problematic for students because it would create a, uh, a gap in their experience and would have to be filled by something, probably government intervention in the form of some form of internship scheme or citizenship program or, or something. Um, uh, but would also put the HE sector in the UK completely out of kilter internationally. So um, it, it already seemed that they were uh, favouring option one of their, their two. Uh, and then Universities UK have ended the week, book ended the week uh, with a similar announcement concluding uh, their review. 
a fair admissions review that's been going on for uh, well over a year now. And uh, their conclusion is very similar, which is we need to move away from the current model and a PQA model is the way we should be going. And in fairness, they've said, we recognise it would probably take three years to get there. Um, and that uh, details of the thinking will will emerge. Uh, and and uh, UCAS have said that details of their two models and consultation on the two will emerge in the coming weeks as well. So um, a step closer to what probably has felt inevitable for quite a while and was brought even more in- inevitable by, I think, the COVID chaos in the summer, um, but still not necessarily the clarity that the sector would want on, well, what does this actually mean? How is it going to impact us? And what is going to change to enable us to be able to deliver a proper post-qualification admissions process, given the timings that currently exist in the in the system? Well, fascinating. So it looks like we're hurtling towards post-qualifications offers, if not, uh, you know, the whole thing. Debbie caught up with University's UK's Chris Hale uh, to get the lowdown on this. So let's just hear a bit of that. Um, we've, we've identified three models. There's post-qualification applications, post-qualification offers, and post-qualification decisions. On post-qualification applications, which is, I think, the sort of more radical end of things, everything would happen after you get your results. And I think for those, you know, schools, colleges, universities around the table, I think they felt that the, the upheaval that would be needed to implement that probably outweighed the benefits that came from it. Um, on the other end of the spectrum was the post-qualification decisions, where you actually don't make any decisions until you've got your offers. Um, but we felt that that, sorry, until you've got your, your grades. We felt that that probably was too much like the current system and really didn't address um, many of the issues and challenges that have been identified. But in the middle was this PQO model where, where um, uh, effectively um, your, your offers are made after you, um, uh, after you get your grades. But actually what you can do is build up a relationship with an institution, curate choices, option do do assessments, interviews, all those kind of things, which is really one of the, the sort of fundamental problems with the more sort of radical PQA option. You can do all of that before the um, uh, before you get your results. So you can, and then the offers are made after you get your results. Uh, and this was something that I think the um, uh, the group felt was quite an attractive option. Um, and also it meant that you didn't need these sort of radical shifts to exam timetables and, and term times and those kind of things. Um, so what they felt was actually this, this model um, warranted um, more, more exploration. Um, I mean, they were very aware of some of the problems and challenges, you know, for example, access to advisors over the summer period. Um, you know, would universities still make under-the-counter offers in the UA? Um, you know, that just undermined the whole thing. So, so what we want to do is take that model, the guts of it are in the, in the report, and we want to um, put that out to consultation and work with schools, work with colleges, work with universities and students to really kind of stress test that, understand it, how, look at how we could develop it and potentially um, implement it within the next three years. I think we're also looking at um, uh, contextual offers and their purpose. And I think what we're going to propose is creating more of a framework around the use of contextual offers, using common data sets to underpin them. Um, and and look and setting out how universities can be more consistent and fair in how they use contextual offers. We did some polling of students, which showed that a lot of students just didn't really understand what contextual offers were and how they were being used. So we're trying to bring more. We're trying to sort of sharpen up the use of, of contextual offers. And then the other thing in the sort of short term area we're going to do is is propose that universities and colleges should publish historic actual entry grades alongside their advertised entry requirements to improve transparency and and I think the challenge there is often you know if you're a student and you've got good advisors good you know good support at home you'll know that sometimes if you if you miss a grade you can sort of 
go for it and see if you can get in. But often, you know, if you don't have that support and that sort of pushiness then and that social capital, I think, then then sometimes you might not not know that potentially what that you might be able to get in, even if you've missed one or two of your your grades. So we 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 hope that being more transparent in that area might help not only increase transparency, but also help with some of the sort of social mobility and um winding participation. Helen, there are other things in there. There are other bits and bobs, aren't there, around uh, contextual admissions? Yes, I think that's the point, the part that I think is most important, really, because anything that comes in, any new post-qualification admission system or the current system, whatever, must make sure that it's a level playing field, in my opinion, for all learners. And I'm more concerned about making sure that we move more quickly with making sure that there's a, um, it is a level playing field. And it has been so confusing for, for university staff, for schools, but particularly pupils. Um, and it has felt that um, maybe some students would not be going to universities, which would be the best ones for them. So, Students need to go to the universities where they can thrive and um, anything we can do to make it easier for them, I think is really good. Chris, what is, is your sense that this will sort of draw a line under what has been actually, I mean, years and years of kind of sabre rattling around admissions and fairness and so on? Or, or is this, you know, a mere staging post? I, I, I don't think a line can really be drawn until there is a, a clear conclusion. Um, and, and we're a long way from that because of the, the devil that's in the, in the detail, really. I mean, you know, to, to, to ask the university sector, the HE sector to review our processes and, and come up with something that's, that's more fair and transparent and uh, and better for for the student and for the applicant you've got to go back a step in the process and um, that's why I think it's at least helpful that Universities UK have said if we're going to get here it's going to take three years there are, there are a lot of things that that will need to change in the way that universities receive results uh, in the timings of those uh, processes and the, the accuracy and, uh, and and you know it will inevitably I think raise questions about um, a levels and and you know uh, FE qualifications full stop and, and the timing and, and exams which have already been questioned uh, for, for good reason in, in the short term due to COVID. Well, actually, well, maybe it's the time to ask some bigger questions there. So I, I think it will, um, far from, from drawing a line under it, it will now set off a new set of conversations. But I guess if there is at least a clear steer that we're going towards this now, rather than um, lots of noise and, and no real substance, then, then that at least gives us um, some direction in which to, to go. Yeah. Helen, look, if DK was on the podcast today, he would say that part of the problem with post uh, quali- you know, post-exam offers is that it sort of cements in everyone's mind the idea that A-levels are a really good way to choose which university applicants you have, where, you know, DK would say A-levels are all over the place as a way of kind of judging aptitude and ability and so on. You know, how much emphasis should we place on those kind of high-stakes uh, post-16 exams in the future? Is, are they the be-all and end-all? Well, I'm I'm really glad you've asked me about that because I've written about it and um, I think that um, we should not look at qualifications, we should look at competences. There's the, When people are um, recruiting for graduate jobs or uh, um, even for more senior roles, they, they, they tend to look at the competences 
you know, can they do this? Do they have the potential to do this? And um, we certainly have been for some time using competence-based uh, uh, um, recruitment rather than qualification-based recruitment, particularly for our degree apprentices. And many of those degree apprentices have achieved higher results than their uh, traditional on-campus BSc students. So um, I think that this ought to be part of the discussion. And maybe it will be make it easier to be more flexible with qualifications because um, we will try, and I think as universities, to try and look at other sorts of qualifications that maybe allow us to recruit students earlier. We're already, we already get the BTEC results a lot earlier um, and that's very helpful for us. Yeah, and, just, and, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because, Chris, on the timings, just from a kind of student services point of view, you know, whichever of the kind of two big solutions uh, that, you know, uh, were, were, were sort of proposed in that in, in that UCAS thing um, would involve crushing a lot of processes into a small period of time. And even if, you know, that it, we're, we're not crushing that, that kind of open day bit into a small period of time, we're certainly still crushing things like, you know, finding accommodation and orienting people around the university and getting people kind of ready to kind of uh, enrol and, and that 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 will be you know that, that that there's a potential for that to be a big compression right that's right and, and also potential for, to, for it to have a major impact on the applicants and on the students themselves and you know i'd like to think that in any consultation we'd be taking their views into consideration there seems to be an assumption that um this would automatically be better for them but in actual fact you know many students might be saying well you know while i'm focusing on the pressure of my exams towards the end of my uh, uh post-16 qualifications having some kind of clarity or sense of direction or 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 um, reassurance about what will happen to me next with with offers um, is actually helpful. And, and if there is nothing coming until the end of August, then that could create a huge amount of anxiety around exactly the same the things you're discussing. Well, where will I be living? Uh, you know, in terms of you know geography, how far from home will I be? Will I need to move? Where am I going to find that accommodation? Is there if there's a massive rush and I don't get the room that I want or in the block that I want, am I going to end up living uh, away from campus? And 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 then on the you know from the institutional point of view, you know already in announcing that results will be published uh, slightly later next summer due to covid universities are looking at each other are looking at ourselves internally saying okay well what does that mean for our own process you know we're already it's already one of the busiest periods of the year um post results and, and pre-student arrival and that registration process now being condensed uh by by a couple of weeks is you know raises lots of questions around the start of term uh, and around the uh, frankly all of the processes that we have in place already for you know processing applications and and uh, like you say you know accommodation um student finance getting all of that lined up you know all of these things are quite often reliant on another stage in the process that's outside of our control and and, and telling us to do it quicker well you know if sfe can't get their uh, ducks lined up to get um the, the, you know money in the students pockets at the start of term in a slightly quicker process then that's that's not going to benefit anyone so yeah an awful lot of threads uh, connected to this uh, this yeah. one issue i think Helen, elsewhere in HE policy, we appear to be preparing to sort of discuss a potential response to Orga, which will focus on, you know, lifelong learning and being able to dip in and dip out and, you know, not having to have all of your education as soon as you leave school. You know, is, is, is there a disproportionate focus on, you know, the kind of rapidity of the conveyor belt? Should we be, you know, rather than saying, you know, let's compress all of this, should we be saying, why on earth does everyone go straight to university when they're 18 and leave school? Oh, that is a big question for a Thursday morning. <laughs> so um, I think that um, over the last uh, few years, we have had to think of a range of different models for higher education. Um, and that's partly because the the demographic of 18 to 25 year olds has gone down. But it's also been um, 
inspired by the, the, the thoughts around fees. Can I afford to go to university? And also the slogan of um, earn while, um, learn while you earn. So I think that um, the, one of the new normals is that um, non-standard is standard. I think already students are studying in a range of different um, ways. and Even those who are full-time are also actually studying part-time because they're working as well. I also think that people are dipping into um, learning a lot more. The degree apprenticeship activity, the um, retraining um, for uh, later in life, um, having to think of a career as not like mine, 40 years in the same industry. So I, I, I think things are fragmenting already. Um, and um, for example, uh, micro-credentials that will help us solve specific issues um, and that you can build up to a whole qualification um, and, and that you can wrap around integrated work experience or your job. I, I I think that will become more of the future. But it does bring us to this issue that happened when the, um, the higher fees came in, that the part-time part education um, and how it was funded and how people looked at it um, completely collapsed. So we will need to think of new models around it. And you can read more about all of that in uh, Debbie's uh, Policy Watch on the issues over on the site. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello. I'm Kate Tapper and I'm a leadership coach. A lot of my work is in higher education and most of my clients are in a kind of cycle at the moment of total overwork followed by total exhaustion, which is just scarily unsustainable. There's a sense that you kind of either do grim determination or you snuggle into a ball on the sofa and never get up again, which is why I think we need to have a completely different conversation about what resilience is. So I think we need to stop talking about resilience as mental toughness and realise that if we want real inner strength, we have to start with self-compassion. Because when we're kind to ourselves, we can stop giving ourselves a hard time and try new ways of doing things. And we tend to be kinder to everyone else and more likely to see that we're all in this together. Hello, my name is Dr Michael Leeds and I'm the manager and curator of the Being Human Festival of the Humanities. I'm also a research fellow and public engagement manager at the School of Advanced Study, University of London. My one key piece this week is called Public Engagement in the Midst of a Pandemic, Lessons from the Being Human Festival. And the Being Human Festival is a nationwide festival of the humanities that's taking place um, at various venues um, right across the UK and beyond starting in November. And what the piece does is look through the programme festival this year, looking for really good and innovative examples of public engagement with research that have been organised under probably some of the most challenging conditions that we've ever seen for public engagement. Um, we're looking at people making um, activity packs to send out to people so that they can engage from home. We're looking at people who've responded really imaginatively and creatively to uh, museum collections and to things that have been hidden away in the back rooms of galleries, archives and libraries and which are being brought to light in really creative ways for the festival. 
Okie dokie, now next up, Tuesday marked the 10-year anniversary of the big 50,000-strong student demonstration in London against the government's decision to triple tuition fees. Helen, what were you doing on 10-11-10? I can't remember um, what I was doing 10 years ago, but I can remember what I was doing in 1979 when I first started in higher education. And when I went to university and there were student student riots for the... And um, they were for far more esoteric reasons and far less important reasons than 10 years ago. I'm not a political animal, but I am a historian. Um, And I know about the importance of challenge and debate and the importance of minorities in making sure that you come to a good decision. So whether um, you support um, political action um, of any kind, I think it was a time when it made us think. And I think it started um, a, a sort of more conscious, a, a consciousness. I've worked in universities where um, there was no consciousness from mo- many of the student body of um, the regime around their fees and how they pay. They paid for what they had um, for what they were getting, and and suddenly people coming to university had to think about: um, Can I afford to come to university? Do I feel that I want to take on this debt? Is it the right thing for me? Um, and so in some ways, that debate, um, that, that disruption um, was, was actually a very positive thing. Um, and we have to remember that um, the, we were in a really difficult funding crisis in higher education. We did not have the money 10 years ago to be able to give a high quality education. The money had to come from somewhere. Um, The problem was that the solution has created us uh, more problems, as it often does, than um, than um, beyond the immediate issue. And um, I think we're going to have to address this at some point. Chris, did you take a trip down memory lane this week? Uh, yes, it was an interesting reflection on uh, on uh, ten years ago because I w- I do very much remember where I was on uh, on that day because I was I was working for NUS at the time, Jim, as you know, with you, and uh, I was I was the head I was the head steward, uh, given the remit of being a head steward uh, uh, at the front of the demonstration. Uh, it's your fault. Yeah, it's, it's, real it's, bank is your fault. Es- essentially, <laughs> essentially, it could be argued that that is the case, but I I will refute it. Um, uh, we had a, a team of. De- Dedicated stewards lining the, uh, the the route all the way back, uh, supporting the march. Uh, you know, and uh, tens of thousands of people had, had come to uh, to make their voice heard. And uh, you know, it really was a credit to students' unions across the country that they'd mobilised such um, a, a great number. Um, the biggest student demonstration I think ever. And and. Uh, you know, it, it all it, it went well for the most part, uh, but then so did the sailing of the Titanic. You know, and um, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, it, as we passed Millbank Tower, um, you know, the, a faction broke off and, and went in, and, and we all saw what happened as a result. So it was, um, yeah, a very interesting and challenging day, and uh, you know, one in which it was very interesting talking to a lot of the students at the end of the day, actually, who had who had just boarded a coach in the morning um, to take part in something. 
and you know they, they, what they thought they were taking part in isn't isn't what what they they were involved in in the end. And actually, they were actually just quite disappointed that um, they didn't feel that they'd had the chance. To, you know, we we had a very uh, pretty and and elaborately put together rally stage at the end uh, with speakers waiting to address the crowds that basically never made it there. Um, and uh, you know, for a lot of people on that day, they didn't get to express their feelings in the way that they wanted to because um, actually, uh, you know, a, a small group had had expressed their feelings in in a different way. Um, and that's what that's what. Made the headlines. So yeah, set aside the set aside the you know the the Millbank thing and the you know the fire extinguisher. Were they, you know, were those student protesters of the day right? Or or in hindsight, you know, have we ended up with a kind of you know a system that has advantages and benefits? Where's your what's your kind of long term assessment, Chris? Well, I I don't think uh, (laughs) uh, I'm not sure that well. I, I certainly think the views of the students at the time were right, and the, and the view that um, the, the the increase of the fees to that level would, um, you know, create a market which would make it difficult for some students to engage in the whole system. Um, I, you know, d- down the line, that that, that model has, has developed slightly, but the the, the you know the, the fundamental. Uh, challenge at that moment for for NUS and for students unions and for students was to uh, you know prevent that that leap in you know it wasn't that long before remember that the, the top up fees had come in it wasn't that long before that that, that you know it was a thousand pounds and that's that seemed to be outrageous so to, to go from three to nine was was huge wasn't it it was a huge step in 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 sort of the final nail if you like in the in the coffin of um, free education and um, you know it's it, uh, certainly in two thousand and four felt like we were very close uh, students were very close at that time. To to uh, winning that that debate, and literally, as I remember, the the, uh, the 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 demonstration on that day, on the day of the vote in Parliament, you know, in the morning, we thought that the the the, the numbers were there um, to to um, dismiss the top up fees uh, motion, and and it was only a very last minute U turn by a few Labour MPs that, that meant it fell down. So you know, in two thousand and four, so to go from being that close in two thousand and four, then the issue obviously became a lot bigger in two thousand and ten in terms of the the the, the change to the system. Um, you know, and, and fundamentally, I think that the, the 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 likelihood of of ever getting that close again was was um, was was reduced after that day, and uh, you know, I don't think it's really reversible now. That was so interesting hearing the two of you talk about history. Um, I think um, the first thing I'd like to start off by reminding us is that um, higher education changes your life, and um, we need to make sure that for a, a civilized society, we we get as many students we give as many students as possible the opportunity so you are more likely to um, vote you're more likely to engage in your children's education you're more likely not to go to the doctor or be obese for example so so there this is not just an investment in the individual but it's an investment in society and so i think that you you can't just see it as the economic benefit for um, an individual you have to see it as um, we are investing in ourselves as uh, a, a social economic a healthy social economic entity um, both nationally and and in, and also internationally but um, and so um, I think one of the issues is that the onus was has be, was put on the student rather than on um, a, a partnership. Um, so, for example, we still don't have um, um, organisations who are employing students necessarily paying for uh, or contributing towards their education. But I think the fact that the, 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 the narrative and the reality is that um, students feel that they are um, p- 
paying for it. And particularly, of course, most of them haven't got any help with their subsistence. They are paying for it up front. Um, and I think that does make um, both negative and positive changes to their attitude to education. So, yes, they are they are more demanding well we're all demanding when we when we're paying for something but in the same the same way they're also serious more serious about their study so uh, the one thing i do remember uh, about when the the 9000 fees came in was the library started getting busier we had to expand the library because if if you're paying money and you're thinking about oh i'm this it's costing me 50 pounds per lecture or um today's um, support from the university is cost, costing me £20. Actually, you may, may want to take advantage of it more. You, you are investing um, and, but, and you, you feel that you need to get more out of it and you need to put something more into it. Chris, a lot of the anger on the day, uh, you know, I think, was probably focused around, you know, where the Lib Dems were in the coalition and, you know, the pledge and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, that, that, you know, that makes some sense. And, and separately, I've written on the site this week about, you know, some of the protections that we may or may not have chosen to put into, you know, you know around students paying. But just on this question of, you know, tuition fees trebling, as it stands... Uh, that the changes to the RAB charge that were published the other week in terms of how much we think the system's costing would tell us that 88% of students, undergraduate, you know, home undergraduates, 88% of students are unlikely to ever pay their full loan. <laughs> and 33% of students will never repay anything. Now, that's a massive big subsidy built into the system, but it remains the case that it's a system where students don't necessarily feel that subsidy. And is that, you know, does that mean we have to keep telling them there's a subsidy or is that a policy failure? Um, I, think it's, I think it's possibly a policy failure or at least a communication of the policy failure. I mean, the, pro the problem is if the, if the defence of of the system is, but don't worry, you won't ever, or a lot of you won't ever need to repay it, but students... Yeah, don't, don't worry, a lot of you will be economically <laughs> unsuccessful in later life, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's not a very reassuring message, and it would just beg the question, well, what, is that therefore the best model? You know, if, if, if the perception of the person that's paying it is that they will pay it, um, they will pay it back, they will be burdened with that debt, and, and that, as Helen says, that, that therefore means that they feel like they are paying for their for their daily experience in university, that, that then adds extra pressure to them to feel that they're getting the most out of it feel that they're achieving as much as possible um you know it, it links to the mental health crisis etc you know actually that um the, the general pressure to do well is increased when there is a an underlying sense that you're paying nine thousand pounds a year for it i don't think it matters how much you try and communicate that but don't worry you might not ever need to and if you do then it's because you're doing quite well actually it still feels like you know there's a price tag isn't there essentially and so if if the price tag never translates to being the correct price tag then what's the point in the price tag? So I, I think that, you know, it, it, students will never understand that kind of level of detail of, of policy. And therefore, if, if the way it translates to them isn't clear, then it's, you know, it, 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 well, the questions need to be asked about, about how it's presented and, and whether it's the right policy. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here with this week's correlation question is Wonky's Associate Editor, David Kernahan. Live from Four Seasons Total Landscaping, it's a special US election version of Yes But Does It Correlate, the podcast segment that once beat Nate Silver. 
I've plotted the percentage of each US state's adult population with a bachelor's degree or higher, with the other axis being the proportion of voters who chose Joe Biden at the time of recording in the 2020 elections. Do Democrats have an advantage with voters who have more higher education? Yes, but does it correlate? should think there's a correlation yeah there's a correlation between higher education institutions and voting for biden yes yeah my, my instinct is yes um although I, I fully expect dk to throw a curveball out there but i think i'll stick with my first instinct which is which is yes and uh, and uh, if not then i wasn't paying enough attention to cnn with my eyes open with matchsticks last weekend All major networks have called this a decent correlation, even at this broad level of analysis. R squared is 0.67, making the relationship statistically significant as P is less than 0.0001. There's an assumption around the world that more experience and education makes for more left-leaning voters, and the correlation for advanced degrees in the US is very slightly greater than this. Data comes from the Associated Press and Wikidata, and where the data doesn't exist, I've expensively litigated for no apparent reason. And finally, guidance published on Wednesday from the Department for Education told us how students studying away from home, that's students studying away from home, not all students, <laughs> might return home from university for the Christmas break. Chris, what's what happens next? Well, we introduce a new uh, week to the calendar called the Student Travel Window, STW. Uh, Stop the war! Oh, no, sorry, sorry. That was a different, that was the demo item. Sorry, yeah. The yeah. Student Travel Week, yeah. Yes, indeed. So add it to your calendars, hopefully not uh, for, for in a, on a recurring basis. So uh, the Student Travel Window will be uh, designated to be uh, between December the 3rd and the 9th, uh, coincidentally just the week after Oxford and Cambridge have closed their terms, and we'll um, put that down to a coincidence. Um, the uh, And the idea is that students are then encouraged to move home during that week by their universities who will indicate which students can leave on which day. And uh, to facilitate this, all teaching will move online from the 9th and uh, mass testing will be available on some campuses dependent on uh, the kind of uh, numbers of cases you've had, uh, your location, the infection rate in your area, etc. Um and they therefore have provided some answers to questions that we've been asking for for quite a while, um, but more questions, I think, remain. So uh, one question would be, is it actually better to condense what would normally take place over a, probably a four-week period into one week? Uh, and encouraging all students to to move on uh, mass around the country and across a, across a six day period. When in reality, they would have drifted home throughout the month of December anyway. And actually, some programs can move online easier than others. So you know, it could be possible to say to institutions, move all your programs online throughout the month of December, therefore creating a more gentle flow. Um, but we are um, where we are. And the reason that they've indicated this window is that uh, if any students do test positive through the mass testing program, they then have a period of isolation at university before getting home in time for Christmas. So there is some some logic to the timing, but it does put pressures on institutions to uh, facilitate this and uh, the, there's a big question remaining around the actual return in January. There is no uh, indication at the moment as to how that will be facilitated and um, 
uh, also around who will be delivering the mass testing where it is going to take place because um, while uh, certainly for us uh, at University of Greenwich we've been working very closely with the, the Royal Borough of Greenwich and, and with uh, Medway Council but especially with the Royal Borough of Greenwich to um, uh, react to the data on cases to put uh, um, temporary testing sites in place where necessary they've been really helpful and, and really positive and we've been looking at, at locations we might be able to put um, mass testing sites if it's required um, the, the implication in Michelle Donnell's letter appears to be that universities will be given the tests and it's sort of up to us to deliver them. Um, so if, if, if a university doesn't get the help from its, its local council in doing so, then who is it that's going to uh, deliver this mass testing programme, uh, which needs to be put together in, in quite a short short period of time. There's also questions about, you know, you move all the teaching online. What about professional programs and lab-based teaching that should simply can't be delivered online? What about those students who are on placements for those last couple of weeks of, of December? Um and as you hinted, uh, Jim, in, in your introduction there, you know, for lots of universities, ourselves included, the majority of our students are not in halls of residence. It is not easy to uh, simply communicate, instruct, control their movement and their decisions. And frankly, it isn't for those that are in residences anyway, but certainly not as easy for those that aren't. So, you know, we've got 20% of our students that are in halls of residence. So, yeah, we can communicate with them and try and put a plan in place and, and get testing put in place locally for them. But for, you know, a huge number of our students who are commuters, they're already at home. So uh, they don't need to travel anywhere. And actually, that just means the end of their university term experience is going to be uh, moved online and, um, uh, you know, for, for no discernible benefit, really. So um, lo lots of questions. And uh, perhaps the biggest question being how on earth are universities expected to enforce this? But we will do our best. We will follow the guidance and we will communicate with our students as clearly as we can to facilitate that uh, happening. And, and I've got to say as well, you know, what we've seen is our students have really, in the vast majority, behaved really well. They, they have followed the guidance. They've taken tests where um, they've been asked to, uh, wherever there's been a small outbreak, they've understood the, the, the rules and, and we've been able to control it, certainly, at our university. And, um, you know, I, I do think that they've been waiting for this guidance as much as we have um, and, that, and that probably we will be able to, you know, facilitate their their, their travel home uh, for the majority but uh, there are yeah lots of questions Helen long long wait for this is is it the right answer and um, you know if it is what what was the question well um, I'm really glad that that I was asked about this today because I spent 11 hours trying to sort this out yesterday and so I am I'm, fe I'm, I'm feeling a bit hysterical about it um, um, the, uh, I think the answer to your question is no, because um, if we take an example, my institution, um, we actually haven't got many students who who will need to travel home. Um, uh, if you uh, there are about we looked at eight eight different groups of students, and the smallest group were, were those who would probably want to who would fit into the category that the government are assuming that, that these these hordes of people crossing the country. Um, Taking the virus with them, um, and and um, certainly in some media outlets yesterday, up to a million students would be swirling around the country. Well, um, I've got fifty percent of of my students who are commuter students. So, um, as Chris has said, um, they are going to have to stop coming in and having on campus activity for the last ten days of term, and and we're going to have to reschedule that. There are I have considerably large groups of students who won't be able to go home, um, overseas students um, who are, will be stuck in residences um, around the university um, from the 9th until whenever. Um, and so um, actually having activity for them on campus um, is really important. And so uh, uh, as well, 
yesterday as, as trying to explain it to staff and students. I was also trying to find ways in which we can make sure that there is enough activity going on, on on campus and looking through the detail of the guidance we've been given and see what was allowed. And it, it seems that using the library as the basis for everything you're doing is probably a good way of doing things. Um, but I, I, I think also, if you look at many campuses, they're actually, the students are safer doing on-campus events than they are um, not. And so uh, in an institution where there are hardly any cases uh, uh, of COVID around, um, amongst the students, I think that this will cause the opposite and will also disrupt students' education, which we're told is what the government are trying not to do. And Chris, I mean, I mean, look, you know, obviously there is lots of debate about the extent to which this is, you know, th this is a real problem. You know, there's certainly lots of chatter and rumour about the number of students who may have already disappeared, the number of students who, you know, are, you know, maybe back in parental homes and pretending to self-isolate when they log on to their, <laughs> you know, their, 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 their kind of, uh, you know, their, their online uh, replacement for face-to-face -face teaching. But setting that aside, this, this question that Helen raises about what will be allowed and what won't be allowed for people that are studying away from home but remaining in university cities, that's a real, it's really thorny, this one, isn't it? Um, you know, what do we do? Because my reading is, if we're not careful and they don't make specific changes to the regs, we could end up with it being unlawful for students that are living on their own over Christmas to even see another human on Christmas Day. That's right. And, you know, we, we've been, as Helen has, you know, talking about what support we need to put in place for the students who are left on campus over Christmas, as we do every year, by the way. And, you know, it's worth stating that um, while I understand uh, Michelle Donnellan reminding universities to put provisions in place for students who are left behind over Christmas, this isn't something we ever forget about. You know, we do we do support these students uh, who remain with us every Christmas because there is always a group of them. And, and, and that, that, you know, fundamentally is the big question. Well, what will be allowed at that moment in time? At the moment, we are in lockdown. And, and obviously, we're hoping that post December the second we come out of lockdown but even if you go back into tier three so you know trying to provide some social spaces so that student x who's on their own in flat one and student y who's on their own in flat 10 can actually come down to the communal area and play a game watch some tv play table tennis just have a chat yeah at this point that would be unlawful wouldn't it? Correct, yeah. <laughs> correct yeah so we're putting these things in these plans in place in the hope that they w will be allowed and and we're back to this sort of anomaly of you know universities being told by the government but of course universities will stay open okay so you're, you're you're telling us that we need to facilitate most of our students disappearing but actually for a lot of our students they still need to access our services we will keep those services open as helen says the libraries will continue to to stay open we're creating um, as many uh, informal learning spaces as we can on our campus uh, around the place that uh, you know a significant distance apart from uh, from others but how much of that will or won't be allowed and, and that that just creates a real set of again questions that we right now can't answer and if we don't get the answer until the middle of december it might be really difficult to put some things in place that are meaningful for the students mm. helen just to pick up this point you know this, this slightly wider point about you know campuses generally being safer than some of the alternatives that students might turn to if you know if there's nowhere else to go my, my sense is that this term outside of formal teaching has been pretty bleak for students and that polling we did the other week you know suggests that students are really lonely do things have to change in the guidance for next term when we're bringing students back to campus or should there be more of a stress on allowing students to not come back to campus you know what what, what needs to change 
Well, well, we too have polled students and students are really keen to be on campus. They're very keen not to have many of them. What do they have? Six months, seven months of being with mum and dad. Um, and they, they, they want a life. They want to start moving on. They want that they chose their universities because they're, um, wanting to study the subject or they're, they're wanting to build up the skills they need to, to get onto the next part of their life. So, um, I think that, um, it's very important that we encourage and we can manage as much as possible to, to get back on campus. We, um, are so, universities have been so careful in making sure they follow the social distancing guidance that, that, that they, the three principles they've been trying to do. One is to keep staff and students safe. The other is to develop um, a really innovative, high quality education that is just as good as it was before, if not better. And the third is to be as flexible as possible. So I, I think it would be a really retrograde step to go back um, to saying you do everything online. Indeed, we're planning to have more um, on-campus activity, both academic and non-academic, because, uh, as, as Chris has alluded to, um, life uh, at university is is a holistic part, um, a holistic life. It's the activities outside the classroom as well, and. Um, we're really concerned about the the mental health and the ongoing mental health of um, a whole generation of students. But it's really difficult, isn't it, with, within the current guidance to to implement those things. And, uh, you know, I, I guess the hope would be that, you know, if this vaccine does start to get rolled out, then, um, you know, there is more reassurance and confidence for students to come back in January and start engaging. Because the, 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 the general uh, rules and regulations and guidance from the government around COVID mean that actually tr- trying to put something on for them is really hard. And actually th- th- for them to feel confident that it's safe to step out. I was talking to our students union yesterday about what we're going to do in January for new students coming in. And they said, you know, in September, but we we, put, we work really, really hard within the guidelines to put on events that, you know, were really tiring, actually, really complicated. And not many students came because they were nervous, because they were trying to follow the national guidelines that says don't go out unless you really need to. But they're also being told universities is open, go and engage in university. So, it's it, you know, something something on a, on a macro level has to change to, in, to give people the confidence that, okay, you know what, it is okay to get out of it. You know, just sport, enabling sport to take place, obviously, you know, is such a big, big thing for a lot of students in their experience. And, and, and whenever... Uh, you know the national guidelines say, "Oh, so gyms have got to close and outside sporting events have, have, have got to be cancelled, but universities remain open." Well, but we've got to cancel all of our sport. We've got to close our facilities. So the part of the university, by definition, isn't open. So something does have to change. Otherwise, as you said, Jim, earlier, we could end up in a situation where we've got sort of mini regulations just for students and universities, which would create a whole load of disquiet in the rest of the country, understandably. So you know, I would hope that January brings with it a new set of COVID guidelines, if you like that. Um, are facilitated by the fact that a vaccine is starting to be rolled out that enables our students to feel confident that they can step out of the front door and we can put activities on for them uh, safely and you know without retribution so that's about it for this week remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today you'll find links in the show notes don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically search for the wonky show via apple podcasts or your favorite android podcast directory or you'll find the feed you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast and if you fancy appearing as a guest on the show, drop us an email on teamatwonky.com and we'll be in touch. So thanks to Helen, Chris, everyone behind the scenes at Team Wonky for making it all happen. And until next week, stay wonky.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.